Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Warhorse Journal podcast, where we bring together authors, artists, and authentic equestrians from across the country and around the world. Today's episode is focusing on a very authentic equestrian named Judy Cauldron. Judy and I connected through the Warhorse Endurance Challenges and actually through a shipping error of mine where I had to give her a call and I had such a joy talking to her. I asked her to please be on the podcast. Throughout her life, she's had a deep connection with horses and just a passion that she sparks up and gives out to the rest of the horse community. It was such an honor to talk to Judy today and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the show, Judy Cauldron. Well, good morning. Hi, Judy. And yeah, uh, you know, both of us are coming at this kind of with totally empty slates. So go for it. Yeah, that's not how I usually fly, but that's how we're flying today. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Judy. We're so happy to have you here today. Oh, good morning. And thank you. And (laughs) I am really looking forward to this. Yeah, you know, I, I think we connected last week because I had a shipping error. Um, that you didn't get your horses and heroes buckle. So that's, and I just had such a good time talking to you that I decided that you should be the next participant of the challenges that is on the podcast. So thank you so much for being willing to do that. Oh, you're welcome. And your challenges, the first one I did, I was 75. And I thought, oh, 100 miles. And at 75, this is a good challenge. And then I that was the that was the ranger. Mm-hmm. And then of course I decided well this was great fun and I loved the buckle. So then it was the rosebud and <laughs> then it was and before I knew it I had 500 miles in. And it's like <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop at that cuz now I'm 76. And of course <laughs> then Misty came along <laughs> and who could not who could not do Misty of Chickadee. So that's the one that I'm in the middle of right now. And thank you for doing the challenges because it just makes it so much fun to put in the time waiting for, waiting, yeah, waiting for your medals to come. <laughs> I hear that it's like Christmas in July pretty often, but I wanted to ask you a very open-ended question that I love asking on my other podcast. And I think people, this is their favorite part of the podcast is, How did you get into horses? I live in Hanover, Pennsylvania, and Hanover is home to the Hanover Shoe Farms. We are the largest standard bred nursery in the world. And my grandfather drove, exercised the horses for the shoe farms. My uncle had horses, and I was that horse-crazy kid who spent all their time hanging over the fences. So one day, and this is true story, one day my uncle appears at my dad's house. We lived four blocks off the main square in Hanover on a main street in a brick house, and he has a Palomino horse for me, and he paid $25 for it and got it off of a boxcar going through town. Now, my dad had a detached two-car garage at the back of the yard, and we converted that two-car garage into two-thirds of a size for the horse and one-third of a side for the grain and the hay. And my brand-new horse came off of the boxcar and moved into a garage in town. (laughs) My one and only riding lesson was my uncle, the same uncle, taking me into the alley behind the houses and saying, you kick to go, you pull to stop, and you turn like this. 
and then he left, and I had a horse. <laughs> wow. But how crazy. Uh, it was just grab every book you can, fly by the seat of your pants, and hang on to every word the older men would tell you. Hang out at the saddle shop, hang out in the barns. I, I was a sponge because I knew nothing. I just... <laughs> I would not recommend handing a 14-year-old girl a horse <laughs> to put in her dad's garage. <laughs> Is this the horse you told me used to ring the bell on the clothesline? Yes. He lived. His Dutch door in the side of the garage accessed my mom's clothesline, and the clothesline went down to the back door of the house because she that's where you would hang your wash every day. And we put bells on the end. And if I was in school and he wanted something, he'd pull the clothesline. It would ring the bell at the house. I'd get home and my mom would say, your horse wants something. (laughs) (laughs) Your horse is hungry. Your horse wants water. She was not a horse person. She was more frightened by horses and not, you know, cows. She walked through a field of cows, but she'd never go through a field of horses. And she would let me know he had been ringing the bells, but she was not about to go up to the garage and check on him. So what was that first horse's name? Oh, we named him Sage, and of everything that could have been wrong, it was. He had a bog spavin in his knee. He had a bowed tendon. He bit my father the very first day that he came home. He bit my father in the stomach. Um, about three weeks later... I was standing at the door with him. I was just leaning against the door. I had my back to him, and he grabbed me by the shoulder and threw me across the aisleway. He was mean. He was sore. He was hurting. He was disoriented. He was pretty much um, angry at the world. And, again, you know, what a wonderful learning experience because by the time his injuries were, were too much for him, but he he began to get to the point where the bug tendon really turned into more of a uh, of a navicular problem. But mm-hmm. by the time we put him down, he'd lay down in the stall, and you could sit under him and hold his head. He he positively taught me that behavior problems are ninety nine point nine percent pain, mm-hmm. and I and I've I've carried that with me ever since. Yeah. So he was, he was, you know, he he was my, my kind of North Star. He, he taught me so much. And then the second horse lived in the garage too. And then by the time of the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth, I was married and we bought a farm. <laughs> I know that now you're, you're a riding instructor, you're a coach. What would you say? As an experienced horsewoman now, what advice would you give to parents and grandparents who might have a particularly horse-crazy child in their family? I mean, because it's not always girls, but it's often girls, but might be a boy that is horse-crazy. What would be your advice? Because for you, it wasn't, you know, waiting for your parents to get you into it. Sometimes it's an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent that could say, Merry Christmas, here's some lessons, you know, instead of maybe here's a horse. What would your advice be? My advice would be exactly that. Um, Visit some barns, walk through, look for quiet horses, find an instructor, a teacher whose philosophy feels right to you, and then take lessons. Um, Lease a horse, see 
if you really are willing to to stay the course with all of the bumps and bangs and crossed and bites and bruised egos and and if you truly if you truly want to do it you'll find a way and you'll find that instructor that can make you smile at the end of the lesson i don't believe that riders need to be abused i don't believe that horses mm-hmm. need to be abused i don't believe that people need to feel drained when they leave their time with their horse they ought to they ought to leave the barn kind of um looking back over their shoulder and throwing their horse a kiss you know that's such a good point judy because it's a lot like church you know where people go to one church and they go that was terrible this isn't for me and that very much can be true for barns and i never thought of it till you mentioned it right there but as you were saying that i've thought of the many kinds of different stables i've been to and there's some I just, if that would have been the first experience for me, I think I would have said the same thing people say about church, like that's not the right one. But so yes, if you're getting into horses, that's awesome advice to don't just visit one place, visit that place till you find one where it feels like home. Yes. And, and, and I see it even with, even with me being a coach, my very first introduction to the person and the horse is never a charge. I will not take money the first time because I may not be the person for you. You may not be the person for me. I may not be the person for your horse. Mm -hmm. And we just spend an hour or so together and there is no hurt feelings. There is no need like, oh, I paid to do this and now I have to. Nope. You don't have to break up with me. (laughs) Uh And and also one, one of my philosophies and my writers laugh at this because they say it'll never happen. But one of my philosophies is that it's it's my job to get fired. I should be able to take you to the point that you want. And then either you're happy there and you have the tools you need and you can use me kind of on call mm-hmm. or it's time to go to someone who is really specific now in your discipline. If you want to do more than training level, this or this or this or this, you need to now move on to an instructor who specializes in that seat. You don't know how much I love that, Judy, because I used to teach riding, and that's exactly how I phrased it to people was, I'm a general horsemanship person. I'm your person to get you into horses. There's a few areas where I could maybe help you along, like dressage or distance riding. But if you want to really do gated horses or you really love Western pleasure or high-level dressage, here's these numbers. And then I would network them out to trainers who I knew were very good in that discipline. And I was really happy with that. And so if, if there is any riding instructors listening and you're trying to be everybody to every person and you're afraid of getting broke up with, I think your advice is is perfect as you want to get broke up with. You want to get them this far along and then say oh you're into ranch riding here's my friend's number you were into western pleasure here's my friend's number and i i think there would be fewer sad breakups with trainers if people would take your philosophy to heart and the point you bring up um of giving references that's something i believe in too i think that's important too that your riders trust you enough to say, do you think this would be good for me or do you think this wouldn't? Because you put your heart into these combinations and you see these horses blossom 
and just the wrong, sometimes just the wrong timing. It can be a very good clinician, but it's the wrong clinician for your horse. Mm-hmm. So we went from your garage to you being an instructor. Can you fill us in? The- my husband was my down the street neighbor. So he knew he was getting into horses when he married me. <laughs> and the first thing he did was look for a farm. So we found 30 acres with uh, just lovely rolling hills and started a boarding facility. After a year or so there, there were enough boarders that wanted lessons, and I hired a young lady who had graduated from Meredith Manor, and she mm-hmm. started lesson program. Two years later, she got married and left, and there were kids and summer kids, and they all said, Miss Judy, you can teach us. And it's like, mm-hmm. I have never given lessons in my life. Well, you know what you're doing. And they were just mostly pony people. Um, the adults would come after work and they would ride through the trails just as a relaxation and a stress relief. So I thought to myself, okay, if I'm going to teach these kids, I better get lessons. And it was the it was the golden age. It was the 1970s. And it was the golden age of all the ex-military riders who after World War II, the cavalry was dismantled, and we had Colonel Kitts, and we had Colonel Thackeray, and we had Major Beale, and we had these wonderful men who would give weekend clinics, and you could go take lessons and learn. And that was, that was kind of the start. All the clients stayed at the barn, and then it just got larger and larger. We had summer camps. We would have 60 kids a week at summer camps, and the horses would work from 8 to 12, and then they'd be put in the barn for the afternoon, and the kids would spend the rest of the day in the fields or in the creek or doing work or learning anatomy or learning to wrap legs or all the horseman horsemanship things that sometimes are missing now. Mm-hmm. I and was going to say that sounds like the, you know, they had different names for kids that hung out at the barn all day, you know, but I was one of those kids yeah, that hung out that didn't go home from the barn. I just stayed at the barn constantly, but I think that's missing today. It is missing today. And my granddaughter rode at a lovely show barn in New Jersey. And one of the hardest things for me to become accustomed to was that you arrived in time for your lesson, and then you cleaned your tack and went home. And even though it was your pony, even though you owned the horse and you boarded there, you were not welcome to hang around. You were not welcome to come on a Saturday, like Grandma's visiting. Can we go get your pony out and and groom it? And it's like, no, Graham, it's not my time. And I found that so hard to accept. And I had to because it was a lovely barn. But they were very regimented. They were very much on time. They were very much the barn opened at such and such a time and closed at such and such a time. And it was um, no time. There was, there was no time to play. Hmm. And that was that was hard for me. That would be hard. And that is one thing people do complain about. You know, there are no barn kids anymore, or some people call them barn rats or whatever. <laughs> they just hang out all the time. Maybe the environments have kind of shifted away from that, too, though. You know, where the barns and, aren't as welcoming as they used to be. And the barns are usually every stall is filled the the barns are in have waiting lists the people who come 
want 100% of your attention for that hour that they paid for. And they don't expect you to be, yeah, having the little barn rats that are sweeping the aisle and knocking down the cobwebs and braiding ribbons in their ponies' manes. And you have, you know, half an eye. You just have half an eye on what's going on while you are in the arena. People are on such time constraints of their own that mm-hmm. they want. So it is different. It's very different. I, you know, like I said, the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, we, dry, we ride. People are worried now about riding out on the hard roads, and I would not ride with today's traffic in a heartbeat because the people who are driving have never had any experience with a, a horse. But back then, we'd ride into town. We'd ride through the McDonald's drive through We'd Christmas carol all through the communities. We'd have parades. Back to my horse in town, I was the only horse in town. So every fireman's parade, every Memorial Day, every 4th of July, whatever parade was going through our small town, I usually got to lead it (laughs) because Mm. I was the only horse. It was just a great time to grow up. It really was, you know, and I don't think we knew that then because I grew up in a barn where my 4-H leader, I, I was there all day. I was just, you need stalls cleaned, I'll clean the stalls. Oh, you need this horse road, I'll, I'll ride that horse. I will clean tack, I'll clean out the trailer, give this one a bath. You know, what What do you need me to do, you know? And that's, that's how I learned so much, you know, going that way. Yes, the riding is easy to teach. The horsemanship, that takes the hours and hours and hours in the barn and in the field and sitting with a sick horse or posing. We had a wonderful creek, and I but two of the kids, if we had a horse that needed their legs hosed, they'd take the horse to the creek. They'd stand him in the middle. One person would be on one bank. One person would be on the other. He'd be um, cross-tied between mm-hmm. the two kids, and they'd sit. And they'd read or they'd talk or they'd make plans or whatever kids do for <laughs> 20 minutes or a half an hour. And the horse would be standing in the middle of the creek having the good cold water just wash over all four legs. I don't know that that's available much anymore. Mm-hmm. I was just talking to Julie from Rescue in Ohio, which is a neighbor to you. And um, she, when I asked her what was one of the greatest challenges in her horse rescue and how to deal with it, she actually said one of the problems is the lack of horsemanship today. And they may have had lessons, but they didn't necessarily have horsemanship. And so that strikes me that you're kind of bringing that topic up again, that we have a missing gap here to where we have gone away from the barn kids and the people hanging out in the barn to, you know, just lessons. And there's there's just gaps in the basic training for people. I wonder how we could fix that, you know, <laughs> to, to um, maybe have people volunteer more at places. Like, so if they're having lessons at their barn, you know, maybe that's not a place to volunteer, but maybe they can go to a therapy riding place and say, you know, can I hang out and learn all these barn chores and learn all this horsemanship stuff? Because it is missing, definitely. And that's a, that's a, that's a great idea. I have three clients that I work with, and they have all rescued horses. The one has three rescued 
standard breads. The one has rescued thoroughbreds through Days End Farm here in Maryland, and they volunteered before they picked their horses. They were there. They were working with them. They were doing all the chores that could be helpful to a rescue facility that depends on donations and depends on volunteers. And then they particularly fell in love with each horse, and that was the one that's like the one lady keeps telling me that Charlie was his name. Charlie was up for adoption, and every time she'd go, she'd just keep her fingers crossed that he was so bad that no one wanted him. (laughs) (laughs) And she'd go, and she'd keep her fingers crossed. It's like, oh, Charlie, just don't be good. And finally, she was in a position where she could adopt Charlie, and she brought him home, and it was like, yeah, she just kept hoping and hoping and hoping that no one would like him. (laughs) (laughs) I hope there's somebody out there today that needed to hear this, and this segues pretty well into one of the questions I had for you, because we already covered the young riders, and how would uh, a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle get their niece, nephew, grandchild into riding. And, you know, like you said, buying lessons is is a great way. You know, volunteering would be a great way also. But my other thing was, I see this fairly often where people will post on Facebook or people will say in passing to me, I love horses, but I'm 45 now, I'm 50. And, you know, I think that passed me by. So I know you were sharing with me that you have people in your lesson program who started riding later in life. Would you have any pointers for them? I mean, maybe this one was a good pointer of, you know, if you're listening, and you really have always loved horses, and you just happen to stumble across this podcast, maybe it's not too late for you go volunteer somewhere. And if that place doesn't feel good, don't give up. Find a different place to volunteer. But Judy, how would you suggest if somebody is later in life or retired and says, you know what, I really do want to learn to ride, what advice would you give them? Well, most, and and this is over a lifetime, I've gone from the pony club and the 4-H kids who could fall off of ponies and giggle and bounce and climb back on and race across the field to what I call my AARP riders, because at this point, there is one young rider. She's in her 30s, and she's the daughter of one of my original students. So this is second generation, 58 to 72 is who I'm working with. Um, my endurance rider, who is competing and And if you know anything about endurance, the big thing for us is finishing the race with Mm -hmm. all A's on the vet check. Mm -hmm. We start with our A's and we end. She's doing 30 milers. She started five years ago at 53. Uh, First horse was too much for her. She didn't work with me. She was swayed by, oh, this is a beautiful horse. You get on and ride across the field like John Wayne. And she, she scared herself. Second horse temperament was not suited for the rider at this point third horse is a dream it's a little horse that had been trained as a civil war reenactment horse it had seen everything done everything gone through cannon fire literally and horse was the perfect match and the two of them started with me and started with what we called 50 foot trail rides and i think that might be a warwick killer but We would pick a fence post, and she would ride to that fence post and ride back. And then we'd pick a fence post 50 feet further, and she'd ride to that one and ride back. 
And she took lessons with me, and we stayed in the round pen so that she could ride with and without stirrups, and she held on, and we got good night strap that fits on the saddle so that if she felt insecure at all, she could grab it. And we worked slowly, 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 and now three years later on this horse, you know, they're leaving tomorrow to do an endurance ride up above Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. She came back from Seven Mountains. She does Bear Hill. The horse was so used to being hauled, so used to standing on picket lines, so used to the confusion of the reenactors that to turn now into a 58-year-old lady safe horse mm-hmm. is perfect. So there's my advice. Decide what your level is, what you want to do. And then find a horse that's already doing it. If you want to trail ride slowly, find a lovely older horse who knows how to take you safely slowly. Don't buy a barrel horse Mm -hmm. to go on a trail ride. My biggest concern with everybody I work with as they they get they, they buy the wrong horse. They buy the wrong first horse and then they either get and give it up or now they have to find a home for that horse because they know they shouldn't have bought it in the first place mm-hmm. so, yes you're never too old to ride you're never too old to learn but you have to you have to be very careful that you're given the right advice and you find the right horse out of all i know there's many life lessons horses have taught you what is one that you'd like to share with us oh my goodness um Okay, I will tell you the first thing is safety. The horse must feel safe in his herd, in his stall, with the horse who's stabled beside him. If the horse beside your horse is gnashing its teeth and and kicking the stall all night long, your horse can't sleep. So your horse has to be safe in his trailer, in your hands. You have to be safe. You need to understand how to keep yourself safe in the barn and Sometimes that's good solid boots, and sometimes that's a better saddle fit, and sometimes that's always wearing a helmet. I positively, absolutely will not work with people if they don't have a safety helmet on. Second thing is nourishment. Now, the nourishment comes from the right feed for your horse, the ability to have their needs met, the nourishment for you. Take your vitamins, take your electrolytes, watch your fitness, just kind of take care of what going into both bodies. Nourishment also includes mental and physical. Take your horses on a walk. Take them over different obstacles. Walk your dressage horse over cavaletti poles. Take your Western pleasure horse and, and teach him to do obstacles. You know, Kind of just nourish you and your horse. Your nourishment is reading. And, and the third thing, safety, nourishment, number three is affection. The horses need affection. They need a soft hand. They need a scratch to their withers. They read your facial expressions. Don't walk into the stall looking like you hate them. Walk into the stall with your heart in your hand. Touch them with your heart in your hand. That's another kind of little thing to hang on the wall. And give yourself affection. When you're tired, rest. When you think you have had a really bad day, just Be kind to yourself and go hang out with your horse, and in 20 minutes, he will change your mood. All of a sudden, your day will be better. 
safety, nourishment, affection. You know, that's my philosophy in a nutshell. I want to have you tell me this story about why Misty was a challenge that you wanted to do and the, the experiences that you had with some of those foals from Chincoteague Island. Go back to the 1950s, early 60s, and go back to town on the main street, down the street, around the corner, was a man who would take the seats out of the back of his station wagon. And these were the big old station wagons. And he would go to the Roundup every year and put two or three or four chickadee ponies in the station wagon. However many would fit would be shoved in the back door and they would be riding home in his station wagon. So then he needed kind of crash car dummies <laughs> to break these <laughs> And the neighborhood kids, me included, would halter break them and saddle them and ride them through the neighborhood. However, they had no steering. They had no brake. We had no fence. You didn't break horses in an arena like today. You just rode them across the field. And very often, we would be taken under wash lines and be wrapped around with people's sheets and underwear and hollered at and you know not more than once a kind of fist like you kids get out of here <laughs> and we just say sorry because we had no steering <laughs> and we would play with those chickadee ponies and gentle them and you know love them and when the misty challenge came up it's like ah oh, for one my kids, next generation, had read all the Misty books and had all their little Misty of Chickatee briar horses, and that was, you know, near and dear to their hearts. But you certainly had to be part of saving the BB Ranch to make sure that these little island ponies can, can affect the next two or three or four generations of, of little kids who, who dream about their Chickatee ponies. And, you know, at the War Horse Challenges, we have, you know, we didn't intentionally start out with um, trying to be saving history. These all started out during the pandemic. And one of the ones we started was the Pony Express to support the Pony Express Museum. And so we were able to send them a, a good amount of money and be part of saving that part of equine history. So when I saw this about Misty, you know, I was like, we need to really quickly put together a challenge for this to help support that part of history too. Because I just think it would be lovely if they could restore it all back to the 100 acres that it used to be that who knows, you know, more people might be inspired to back to making that what it was, because otherwise, I think everything gets so built up. But we were super happy to be able to be part of that. I mean, we would be doing a next challenge anyway, but then this way we were able to send part of the money there. I had wrote, read that book as a, a young girl and just thought, what an opportunity and how wonderful. You know, they did save it. They were able to buy it outright. And, you know, that was the first episode of this podcast was about Cindy Faith, the director of the museum. She said they just had this enormous outpouring of so many people who sent $5 or whatever they could send. And they sent letters and they said how important that book was to them when they were growing up. It's somewhat miraculous that they were this little museum was able to fundraise that much in time to be able to save that piece of equine history, or I'm sure it would have been flattened and built upon, which would have been pretty sad. Yeah, it was a developer that had um, had shown interest in it and was 
And a lot of developers have endless pockets, so to fight them is, is really a challenge. Yep. And it was, <laughs> I think we all cheered. Mm-hmm. Well, when you stop and you think back about this, because sometimes we can feel ineffective in life, and, you know, Marguerite Henry deciding to write that story really saved that piece of land. She she doesn't know it, right? She's gone. But that's yes. just, a, just amazing that even past her time, her influence went on. And But it was just, it was amazing how it lined up that Misty would be the first topic on this podcast, the very first episode, because, you know, that was one of those first books that so many of us read. And it just makes me think about bringing community together to do something. That is huge. You know, I don't know if we could really stop and think about how huge that is, that that piece of property was saved because there's just fields that used to be fields and they're not fields anymore. You know, they're neighborhoods now and we lose so much land that used to be farmland. So it means a lot that we got to save. Be We're just a small, small donation compared to some of those big donations, but it was so good to be able to be part of that. And honestly, um, it goes full circle because this other side of that is that we're East Coast. We take this kind of in stride. We're used to the swim every year. What about the people from Wyoming and Montana and Nebraska? You know, how much do they know about the Pony Swim and the Assateague Island? But they know the book. They may never have seen the swim, but they read Misty. And, you know, that's what brings us all together, that you're right, that Marguerite Henry thought about that story, and she doesn't see what's still happening, but it's still happening, and little kids are still reading about it. For me, what is one of your all-time favorites? One of my all-time favorites, what do I keep picking up and going back and reading? True Horsemanship Through Feel. I have not really gotten to the end of it yet. Is it because you're like me and you get to a really good part and you're like, wait, I need to think about this? Yes. Yeah, that's what happens to me. Like, people are like, you didn't finish this book. And I'm like, it's not because it isn't good. It's because it's so good that I get to this part and I go, oh, I need to sit with this a little bit, you know? And reread what you already thought you understood. You know, we all expect our horse to learn from us. Well, then we need to learn from um, people who have gone before us. Yeah, one of my students that progressed the fastest, her dad was amazing. He came into the barn and he said, I know people are usually in here for once a week lessons. He goes, but I see you're really good at what you do. What would it take to get her up to speed quickest? And I said, realistically, because we want to give her you know, muscles, time to adjust and whatnot. I said three times a week, you know, the whole summer. And, you know, he did that. He brought her three times a week. By the end of that time, people would watch her ride and they thought she had ridden her whole life. You know, they just thought she was born on a horse. But it did take that three times. And she was a barn barn rat too she stayed there she didn't she didn't go home after her lessons she was like pick me up at dinner time you know and she just hung out all all summer and I do think and I know she probably was 13 14 at the time and she just progressed so quickly so yes the amount of time you put into it matters for sure, no matter what age yeah. you are. She could have been you know she's an example of if you just tripled up that time, you know, how much time are you putting into it? And then we found her the perfect horse, and she did amazing. I was so glad we found her the right horse. It just made all the difference for her. But 
even as a seasoned horse person, um, sometimes you can make an additional purchase of a horse that, and not make it the smartest way. I mean, even though we know as horse people how to do it the right way, sometimes we don't. And I have a story about how I did that a couple years ago. I lost a horse to EPM about almost four years ago. And um, I, I made just kind of I bought a horse the way you shouldn't buy a horse. I just, I just, um, my husband had said, you know, I said, well, we can put, because he had built me a five stall barn. And we had, when we were envisioning this barn, it was always, you know, Junior, Houdini, and then Shadrach on that wall. And so the whole, you know, we had had this barn and, you know, Houdini was a varnished roan, very bright white, um, Appaloosa, and he's in the, this middle stall and my husband said you know I said well we can put grain in there we can store because we couldn't move the mares over the mares are on the other side and I'm like none of them are going to get along like we just are going to have an empty stall and he said that I didn't build it to be a tack room I didn't build it to be a grain room I built it for your Appaloosa and you need to go get another one because what looking at that empty stall is breaking my heart he said you need to go get another so I said, okay, you know, yeah, forced me to go buy another horse. So I um, I looked for all, you know, horses that were started. And my husband, I would show him and he'd say, no, no, don't like that one. No, can't go look at that one. Didn't like any of them. And then I saw this little seven-month-old in North Dakota, which is a fair amount, you know, drive from here. So I couldn't really go see him. And I showed it to Jim and he said, that's the one. If you can get him home, you can have him. <laughs> so I prayed about it, and within an hour, I had three different ways to go get him. I had two friends who said, let's go, road trip. And then I had the lady who I was buying him from, she set it up to have him get taken to Minnesota. And if I could get him from Minnesota to Wisconsin, then we could pick him up somewhere in Wisconsin. So yeah, we got him home. And, and so... I was so, this is the one that I, and I was so heartbroken that I didn't look into his bloodlines or anything. She just said he was Foundation Appaloosa, and that was enough for me. And I, after I got him, I looked into his bloodlines, and he's probably one quarter Foundation Appaloosa. He's probably, you know, his mother was an unregistered paint, so there's probably there's probably quarter horse in there. And then on his father's side was half quarter horse. So I was like, that's a lot of quarter horse for, you know, not really for what I want. I really was hoping I was getting, you know, off foundation Appaloosa. But I love that little weirdo. He is so strange. He does the weirdest little things that only the horse before him did. I have barn cameras and I looked out at the barn camera one day. It was the weirdest thing. It looked like there was two horses in there because I saw this dark, looked like a dark horse in his stall. And I'm like, what is going on? Did the stall doors get left open? Did one of the other horses get in there? And then he turned his head. Um, so that was one big wall. The other wall, he turned his head, his white head turned in. So it looked like there was two horses standing in that stall. And it just freaked me out. Just, I don't know. I thought I thought I was looking at him. And then this other head popped around. And it was like Houdini was in there with him. And 
I'm telling you, like, he has some of the weirdest habits that Houdini had. And I told Jim, I'm like, it's like Houdini came and visited him and said, do this, do this, do this, do this, and this, and she's going to know that I approve of you because <laughs> you're going to have my habits. And he is. He is such a little weirdo, and I love him for it. And I wish he would, uh, his legs would get thicker because I like big, thick legs, but he's got these tiny little feet, you know, <laughs> and these thin little legs and I'm like you're three years old do you think you could bulk out anytime soon <laughs> you know but um yeah and don't discount your Houdini he most likely probably what Matt stopped mm-hmm. <laughs> I, so, I believe in this kind of thing there was um yeah because we we had put him down in that aisle there like my barn is kind of the opposite of most barns most barns have small stalls on long walls we have huge stalls on short walls, so I have this big area in the middle where I can do groundwork and stuff, and that's where Houdini was down. And when when we had let him go, he got, like, this excited whinny, and that was the last thing he did. Like, he was seeing something. Like, he was so excited. And um, so... Joey was standing on that spot, and then and I took a picture because he did it for so long. I had time enough to take out my phone and take a picture. He st- was standing on the spot where Houdini bre- breathed his last breath, and when I put his pad on him, he started looking up like a stargazer does. Never has done it since or before. And he stared up like he was looking at something. He stood there for a minute. You know, and I got the phone out and took a picture, and I couldn't believe it. That was pretty soon after we had gotten him. But let me tell you real fast about the Winnie. Um, one of my ladies had an old Tennessee walking horse, and then roundabout, she bought um, paint. And the two of them were pasture buddies for years at her farm. Bought another paint, so now there's three of them. And the old walking horse just, we knew it was time. So we were... In the little grassy patch at her driveway, we always have to have the carcasses come picked up, so we need access to trucks. And the two paints were there over the fence, kind of watching the whole thing. That's another thing I do is I talk to my horses. I tell them what's going on. And we gave them a day to say goodbye to each other and know that this was what was going to happen in the morning. So long story short, they sedated the old horse, and he just, laid down and was very quiet and the two paints walked away they walked down to the hay feeder maybe a hundred feet away but out of sight they were behind a couple a row of pine trees and totally out of sight so the veterinarian injected the fluid and the old horse just stopped breathing the instant the instant he took that last breath his barn mate whinnied so clear and so loudly, and neither horse could see each other. It wasn't that the paint knew the black horse was gone visually. The paint knew somehow that the black horse just passed over. Hmm. And everybody that was there, the vet and the owners and me, and it was like we all looked at each other and said, what was that? Because he was out of sight. He was behind the row of pines. But it was instantly, Domino just sighed. And Batman, 
I guess whinnied goodbye or whinnied hello or whatever. But yeah, they do that kind of stuff and it just gives you chills. I didn't plan on talking about this topic, but it did come up, so we should address it. But that's a part of horsemanship none of us are prepared for. And I know I have that coming up. I have a horse that has DSLD and it's progressively getting worse year by year and so at 75 you've had to do this probably more than once do you have yeah. have advice for us on how to say goodbye and when to know it's time and how to I'm telling you I am not dis, I am not downplaying the phrase PTSD I'm not I'm a veteran my husband's a veteran I have respect for that but I do believe that people like nurses, veterinarians, and horse pet owners, you know, dog owners, nobody prepares us for having to make that decision, you know. And I do think we get PTSD a little bit as horse owners because you, and dog owners because you know that that's part of your responsibility is letting them go. So do you have some advice for us about how to deal with it emotionally and also how to know when it's time? My very first experience, I was 10. My dad's two hunting dogs contracted um, what was called skunk distemper at that time. It was in 57. And I was, you know, I was the kid that fed them and talked to them and took care of them until the vet came to put them down. So 10-year-old, that was the first. And with, with the philosophy back then, it was just matter of fact. Yes, it's sad, but so now we come 60 years further, and I've had instant horses that have instantly died. Um, one big horse that had surgery to have a growth taken off of his neck, but the anesthesia did not stay in the artery. It went into the surrounding tissue, and all of that tissue decayed and died on the spot. And then I've had horses like yours. I had a big mare with DSL, and we had to think about it. And what we thought about was, could she get up in the ice of a Pennsylvania winter? And when we knew that she could not lay down in the field and be strong enough to get her hind end under her and get up, it was time to find a lovely fall day before the ground froze and before she had to struggle. So prepare yourself. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, what you can always do, I have become convinced an animal is old, there will be a predator that will take it out before it suffers and struggles and is rejected by the herd. So our conversations are always, if this horse was in the wild, could it keep up? Could it find food? Could it have a life that is consistent with... Uh, with what we would think of as being quality of life? Or would this animal be constantly, 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 constantly stressed with, is it a bear, is it a lion, is it a, where did the herd go, why did they? And if you have those conversations with yourself, you can make that best call for your horse because you will know that Mother Nature would not have let it suffer for years and years. I have one farm. The horse is so lame. She has... She can barely walk. And the vet and I are encouraging the owners weekly to put her to sleep. And they have hung on to this horse walking like that for almost a year. 
Mother Nature would not do that. So I am very, I am very much for the animal. Don't, don't, don't keep them because we can't let them go. If they couldn't survive on the open plain, let them go. It is, it is hard, especially when they, like the horse that we had to put down from EPM, he, my husband just couldn't get over, you know, it was quite dramatic how he could not get up. And my husband couldn't get over the fact that he was still bright eyed. He was still beautiful. He was still healthy in every other way. And to look into those bright eyes and say goodbye broke me. I mean, it just broke me. And it was devast. It was it was very devastating. And all you can, uh, you know, all you can do is just say, and we do. We look at them sometimes and say, "Sorry, sweetie." And then other times we say, "We know how incredibly tired you are. Just close your eyes. When you open them up, you'll be running." through the field and then we give them like two dozen names of horses they can go find Mm. (laughs) go find sage and go find gypsy and go find misty and go find sun and go find dandy and go find bobo and it goes on and on and on i literally i've had dozens and i laugh because they say your animals will meet you at the rainbow bridge like yeah i'm gonna have a stampede (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we get them we get them for such a short time, but like you said earlier, you know, just even 20 minutes with them changes everything. It just yeah. it just does. And you know, let that be a reminder if if life's really hard right now and you think that you're too busy to go out by your horse, then you're too busy. You need to go out by your horse because your horse will will calm you down and center you and make everything right again. And just, I don't know how they do it, but it's this wonderful surprise every day. Like my husband says, you know, we know where our money is. It's out there. And it's like, instead of some big vacation every year or a big vacation twice a year, he said, we get it every day, every time we want to go out there and be with those horses. And he doesn't really ride anymore, but he just loves them. And I I tell people that too. Sometimes if they have a horse that they can't ride anymore. And I said, well, you don't ride your dog either. You know, like you, you, right, you, right, you yeah. love your dog, even though you can't ride him. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, why, why do you not just hang on to that horse? And that's one of the things about the challenges is that it has given people something to do with their horse, which is hike with them. And I'm still amazed if I'm out riding and I get down and I walk a mile with my horse, there's just something that happens walking with your horse. And it shouldn't surprise us because that's what they do with each other. You know, yes. and you go from bringing the predator on the back kind of position to the herdmate next to them. And I'm telling you, there's something that happens walking with your horse. And we have had several people in the challenges who can't ride that horse for whatever reason is up with the horse and just turn these into I'm going to walk 100 miles with my horse. And you know what? I dare you to walk 100 miles with your horse. It will change your relationship with that horse beyond my horse that has dsld when he was a baby that's all i could do with him and i would walk with him and walk with him and walk with him and i've never been closer to any horse than that horse 
And I think it's the hundreds of hours I walked with him. So as we wrap this up, Judy, any parting words for us? And, you know, what is it that kept you going with horses all these years? Why did you decide to make that part of your life? Did you ever read the um, self-care advice that says, ask yourself what you did as a little six, seven, eight-year-old? You know, did you play with trucks? Did you play with Legos? Did you set your babies all up in a row and play school or did you bandage them? You know, what was, what was your love before you knew it was your love? And mine was always animals. There was always a rabbit or a chicken or a dog or a cat or a bird or a something. And ponies just evolved into horses. And I am doing at 76 exactly what I was doing at six. Hmm. And how, you know, how lucky how incredibly lucky is that? Well, thank you, Judy, for taking the time to chat with me today. We appreciate you so much. I hope that I can talk to you again in another 10 years, and you're still doing exactly what you want to be doing at 86. Well, give me five years. I think I'm good for another five. <laughs> thank you for asking me, because, uh, you know, the horse world... The, the horse world can be very dark, and the horse world can be very light and brilliant. And I love to be in this wonderful time of life for the horses that we're caring for them and looking at them as sentient beings and making our world better by making their world better. I have seen the horse world come a long way. Mm-hmm. This is true. I mean, we reminisced about the time spent in the barn and all the things we saw there, you know, and the truth is and learned there. But the truth is, it wasn't always wasn't always good. No, there were there were some some heavy parts, but then we learned not to do them. Mm-hmm. Yes, that so. that became a driver and a thing to spur us on to think there's a different way, there's a better way. Yeah. Yes. And then yes. we grow and we encourage one another and make it a better world. And that's what you're doing. And and we thank you for that, too. And thank you for inviting me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you, it's almost the weekend, Judy. I hope you have a beautiful weekend. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us on the War Horse Journal. 